Hi, I'm Stephanie Von Lackey. Welcome to episode four of Battle Rhythm. We'll get things started shortly with my co-host, Steve Seidman. We'll talk about the news a little bit to start, and then we'll have our Emerging Scholars segment with Megan Shoemaker, followed by our interview with Professor Sylvia Vashevkin from the University of Toronto. And last but not least, we'll have Steve Spieve. Congratulations, Steph, on being named Honorary Lieutenant I'm sorry, Lieutenant Colonel of the Princess of Wales' own regiment. What does that mean? Do I have to call you ma'am? You can, but thank you for the congratulations. My first day isn't until January 1st when I get to wear the uniform and go to the mayor's levy in Kingston, but I'm very excited. What does this involve? So it involves several things, and I'm lucky because I've given a handbook that explains exactly what honoraries do, but you're supposed to be supporting the commanding officer, you're supposed to be spending some time with the troops, and indeed I look forward to going out there with the troops on their military exercises and training activities, and you're also supposed to represent the regiment at different events and to ensure a tight link between the regiment and the rest of the community. So it's going to be a very steep learning curve, but I can always refer to that handbook if uh, I'm worried about how I'm doing. And the funny thing is, I was reading that handbook and <laughs> it says, don't expect to be treated like royalty. Oh, well, that's gonna be a change for you then, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. But I think it's a useful reminder because uh, I think it's important to get your hands dirty and to go out there with the troops and find out what they're up to and then to uh, be a, a very visible presence for the regiment. And the regiment is a reserve regiment? It's an infantry regiment. Uh, yes, they are reservists and it's in Kingston, the Princess of Wales own regiment. So what kind of time commitment is this? We'll see. <laughs> it, that, that varies a lot from honorary to honorary. Uh, the nice thing about uh, the Prince of Wales Own Regiment armories is that it's right by my house. So I don't have an excuse for not showing up. Very cool. And does this mean that you, they're going to issue a rifle and, and, and a bayonet and ask you to charge various objects? No, I'm not even getting a sewing kit, <laughs> but I do have uh, all the <laughs> uniforms for, for various uh, types of activities and events. Well, that's that's fantastic. I think I can't think of a better person to, to, to fill this kind of role. Uh, obviously, you've been very active in engaging the military in, in, in Kingston. Uh, so uh, enjoy. And I'll try to make sure I pronounce lieutenant correctly, since this is one of the things that uh, as an American living in Canada. Yes, I've been here for 19 years, but I was in the United States for a long time before that. And uh, I just don't see the F in lieutenant, but then there again, when we say colonel, there's no R in that either. So I have a lousy argument to stand on. Mm, you'll get it right eventually. We have six years to practice because <laughs> your commitment, you do three years as lieutenant colonel and then three years as honorary colonel. So we'll, we'll, we'll get it. Oh, very professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> in, the, in the media recently, we wanted to discuss Canada not being invited to the Iran fleet. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's uh, an interesting time because the United States has been ramping up tensions with Iran over the arms deal. Canada has been able to say, stay out of most of this because Canada is not part of the six parties that negotiated the agreement. But I, I think that you know Canada often feels snubbed by when it's not invited to these various parties. I think this is a great thing not to be involved in. Um, the idea that the United States and Iran might get involved in some sort of 
dispute escalate tensions, that the British now are trying to do their own fleet. I think this is more trouble than it's worth. And if the United States decides to go to war with Iran, I think that Canada should stay out of it. So any opportunity to stay out of this particular dispute is a, a win for Canada. What do you think? Well, since Canada didn't receive a request, there's no real choice to make. And I don't know if that's a reflection of our stature as a middle power or something deeper, but I tend to agree with you there. And you can even see it with the UK really wanting European countries on board and, and making a really European fleet rather than a multinational fleet involving the United States. Uh, it's framing the intervention in a certain way. And it's kind of strange to have the British saying, hey, let's have a European defense initiative at the time that they're pulling out of the European Union. So I'm not sure they're going to get much uptake from the rest of uh, Europe on this. What do you think? No, and, and there's another uh, variable to consider. It's uh, Boris Johnson's <laughs> rival onto the scene. Oh, my. The British have learned nothing from the Americans. Yeah, and, and Bojo, as he's sometimes called, supported the nuclear deal. Probably wants a closer relationship with the United States, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if on this Iran issue, he'll opt for continuity or maybe a different strategy. Well, one factor that matters more to the Europeans is they, they all have business interests in Iran. And so the efforts by the United States to sanction Iran, which ultimately may lead to the United States penalizing European countries, that actually puts the British more or less on the same page as the French and the Germans, I would guess. Well, I think I'm sure we'll be following Bojo in the days and weeks and months to come, depending on how long he sticks around, given that his majority is now, I believe, one seat. Uh, but uh, it looks like the British are going to do their best to take the eyes of the world off the Canadian election. Uh, that's coming up since this is all going to reach a, a crescendo or a climax in October. So let's move on to a, a different situation. Uh, one of the items that came in the news is the F-18 replacement that... Uh, the government has issued well, the request for proposals from the various companies, and I believe we have four bidders at this moment in time to supply the next fighter plane. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know what? I don't like to talk about procurement too much. <laughs> <laughs> one, thing that, uh, one thing that was interesting from, from my standpoint is that at a moment in time, where Canada is issuing this request for proposals and where we're going to be talking a lot about the F-35 and whether that's going to be the choice ultimately or not, uh, Turkey is also undergoing <laughs> similar kind of process because, you know, the door might be closed on Turkey being able to purchase F-35. So it has to look at other options. Yeah, the context for this is that Turkey is buying a Russian uh, air defense system. And I believe the Americans would be upset to have their plane that's designed to avoid Russian air defense systems in the same space as a Russian air defense system so that the Turks and then the Russians may learn how best to target that system against the F-35. Uh, plus, it's also a general punishment of Turkey for going outside of NATO to buy uh, systems from the Russians, which is basically pretty much against all the interoperability that we talk about all the time. So now, you might end up buying more stuff from Russia after this <laughs> than it even planned on doing. Yeah, yeah. The, Turkey is, is, is really up there for the most difficult ally in NATO. Of course, so is the United States these days under Trump. But they're certainly not making it easier on us. When we were at the NATO summit, two, I guess two years ago now, or was it last summer? When we were in Brussels, uh, we got to witness uh, a fun roundtable where it was the German defense minister, Van Heiderleiden, who will soon be the European Union president, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Turkish foreign minister over precisely the issue of the, the Russian air defense system that the Turks are buying. And the Germans 
were pushing really hard back at the Turks who were very, very critical of all of NATO. So I do believe that there's, you know, the larger NATO picture of this is that some folks are looking into how do we expel members from NATO and expelling Turkey from NATO would be a major sea change in how NATO operates. I don't think it's likely to happen, but that we're having this discussion, this conversation is uh, pretty shocking. I don't think there's an established procedure for doing mm -hmm. that. There's a provision that an ally can exit the alliance, and so you would put in for that notice and eventually uh, leave. But I don't think Turkey necessarily has intentions of, of leaving. No, they don't want to leave, but some people are talking about developing a procedure for kicking folks out. I, again, I don't think it's likely because everything at NATO operates by consensus. And since Turkey's inside, they can they can stop consensus by voting against this kind that's of thing. Right. That's right. Yeah. Why were uh, US and NATO so unsuccessful in persuading Turkey not to do this? Well, I think there's a lot going on here. Part of it is that the United States has been looking to Kurds in Syria as an ally in the war against Assad and against ISIS, that the Kurds there have been the most reliable fighting force on the ground. And obviously, the Turks are upset when any time any Kurds anywhere get more capable. Uh, so I think that's been a sore point. Um, Erdogan is also probably upset that when there was the coup attempt several years ago, the United States and NATO countries kind of didn't jump in with their enthusiasm for Erdogan because they kind of would have liked to have seen somebody else run the place. So I think there's a whole lot of tensions that have all been coming, bubbling and bubbling for quite some time. And now it's coming to a head with the Russian missile system, with F-35. I don't think it's going to get any better anytime too soon. No, I agree. I agree there. One of the other items in the news is closer to home, which is that the Canadian government has settled with some victims of sexual misconduct that they experienced when they were part of the Canadian Armed Forces. What are your thoughts on this? I think that uh, it's good that there's continued attention on this case. To me, the settlements always look too small. But again, this is Canada and not the United States. And maybe I watched too many episodes of Suits. <laughs> but uh, sustained attention on this issue is, is definitely warranted. And, and there have been a lot of changes in the past few years when it comes to sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. If you think back to Operation Honor, which really is looking for a journey of cultural change for the Canadian Armed Forces to introducing new ways of reporting for victims and survivors of, of sexual misconduct and also other changes that have been introduced is just collecting more data on this stuff. So uh, one thing that they've done at the Canadian Armed Forces is that they've collaborated with uh, StatsCan so that a survey is conducted and we can have more reliable data on these incidents. And I guess the question that always then is if you, the numbers go up, is it because we're not making progress, things are getting worse, or that we're getting better data, and so we're actually finding people are more comfortable with reporting, or and people are are finding more venues to to get help uh, than before. So maybe the numbers spike up at first, and then they'll go down as the culture changes. So it's kind of hard to tell which way things are going, right? It is difficult sometimes to interpret that data, and there are changes as well, and the policies when it comes to reporting. One controversial aspect of the reporting policies was the duty to report. That means that if you saw something as a bystander, you were obligated to report. And that made a lot of victims and survivors nervous or uncomfortable. And now you see there's a change from the duty to report to maybe introducing approaches that really put uh, the survivor at the center of the approach that is taken. And so if the survivor is reluctant, to disclose, report, or engage in official procedures, then uh, there are more options for that individual. What, are we, what questions do we get from our listeners? 
Well, obviously, all eyes are on the upcoming elections in Canada. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the United States, too, but let's focus on Canada. Now, traditionally, foreign and defense policy issues aren't game changers when it comes to elections, but do you think that certain security and defense topics will matter more to voters? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I tend to go with conventional wisdom, but if you remember back four years ago, one of the turning points of the election wasn't so much the stances that Justin Trudeau had, the particular positions he had on defense and security issues, but it was the, the debate that was focused on foreign policy, where he showed some level of competence, some level of knowledge, some level of comfort, uh, and that really undermined the conservative plan to portray him as not being ready. Once, once he was able to do away with that, because he showed that he can be a foreign policy leader, uh, I think that... Uh, played a major role in changing the fortunes of the liberals from being the third place party to to ultimately winning the election. And again, it wasn't on the the issues itself, but was on sort of the is he ready yet? So I think one thing that may come up this summer is, and I and I wonder if the liberals are going to try to use the same dumb strategy that the the conservatives did, is portray Andrew Scheer as not being ready, that he's not competent to be a, a foreign policy leader. Uh, because if Scheer can meet some sort of low expectations, then that will quickly disarm that accusation. So I I think. For this summer's or this fall's uh, conversations, it might turn not so much on, okay, how do we best deal with China? How do we best deal with Trump? You know, what kind of planes are we buying? What kind of ships are we building? But it might just be a level of comfort with the various potential leaders. What are mm. your thoughts? Well, I think certain issues are, are still going to make it in, in the news and the debates. Procurement uh, is going to be one we'll probably hear about. Now, the liberals are going to blame the conservatives for why mm -hmm. things have been so slow and vice versa. Uh, China, although this is more foreign policy than you know defense per se, uh, I think that Trudeau's record might also be criticized. So his big UN comeback has been a little bit of a failure, in my opinion. It's been more of a NATO comeback than anything else. But these are some of the issues that I think we'll be hearing about. Yeah, I think the NDP can hit him hard on that. I'm not sure the Conservatives can actually take wax on the UN thing, because it's not as if they were, or they're huge fans of the UN. But I, I think you're right on that. I think that there's going to be a competition amongst the parties to promise to build ships in not just two places now, but three places, since that, that is the way they see procurement as jobs programs. I was just looking back at the liberal defense platform from 2015, where the cover of it referred to jobs, not defense. <laughs> yeah, build, building a stronger Navy with jobs for Canada. It's like, okay, that's that's the purpose of our Navy is to employ people in Halifax and Vancouver, mm. and, now, and now Quebec and, at the Davy shipyard. So uh, I think you're right. There'll be a lot of criticisms, but I think there's also going to be outbidding about who can spend more money on, on the ships. Uh, what are other issues on defense? I think the challenge that the conservatives are going to have is that they can talk about spending more money. Sheer has referred to new submarines, but they also want to talk about deficit spending or getting rid of deficits. And so I think it's going to be hard for them to make major claims about spending more money on defense at the same time they want to cut the budget because that's where the money is. That's true. All right. Well, one question we were asked was uh, for you which is your work in part explores gender in the military, yet feminist international relations scholars are often very wary of being co-opted and of hanging out with the military, of speaking military. Now that you're a lieutenant colonel, how do you make sense of, the, of, the, of these uh, potential tensions and, and navigate them? Yeah, I think that there's, there's room for all approaches. I think there is uh, definitely something to be said 
from criticizing the military uh, from the outside using a feminist lens. And, and there's definitely still going to be those, those voices that don't believe the two can ever be reconciled uh, and probably believe the armed forces should be abolished altogether. But I think that we tend to exaggerate the extent to which the views are so polarized. Uh, and I think that uh, many, many feminists in international relations understand that in order to provide a sound critical assessment of military culture, it helps to know the nitty gritty of the organization and to have knowledge on the inner workings of the armed forces. Organizational culture uh, and especially military organizational culture is very complex and can be opaque. So when you think about reforming an organization like the military and providing recommendations, I think that understanding um, the organization uh, deeply will help you in terms of not only establishing the credibility of your voice, but providing recommendations that are well tailored to the realities. But that being said, uh, I think that this is an opportunity for a broader conversation. You get that question a lot. Uh, is it possible to be a feminist scholar and to engage in the military? Or even is it possible to be in the military and to be a feminist? What are your thoughts on it, Steve? You know, the question wasn't directed at you. I'm still interested in hearing your thoughts. Well, I, I think ignorance is not bliss, is, is my first take, which is that I think that it's better to know something than not to know something. And it's better to interact with those parts of the government that you might be very critical of, because if you're just on the outside looking in, chances are you're not going to get listened to. Chances are you're not really going to have a good grasp of, of the reality. So... I can't speak as a, uh, I don't do feminist IR, but I can speak as someone who's who has helped to create a network of Canadian defense and security scholars, because one of the questions that we were faced when we were putting together the application is, uh, is this just going to create the military industrial academic complex? Are we going to be too friendly to the military? And in fact, recently, a certain journalist on the West Coast accused me of being a crony of the military. Mm -hmm. In my mind, yes, the military is very, very powerful at socializing people. They do a very good job of messaging and trying to convince you the, that they're right and other folks are wrong. But you have to go in knowing that they're doing that. You go in trying to ha get a greater, greater understanding. Our job is to understand things better. I think that's fundamentally the starting point for being a professor is our job is to understand. Mm -hmm. And distance can provide a critical lens, but it also inhibits some forms of understanding. Uh, so in the end, my general view is of a portfolio that there are lots of different ways to do things and no one way is perfect and so it makes sense for some people to stand outside. It makes sense for some people to get inside and there's some, uh, and for some people to be in between. So that way we get all these different perspectives and then we can see the entire elephant from all the different perspectives as opposed to just from, from, one, from the, the side or the top or the bottom or the front or the back. Yeah, I think that whether you think that the military needs change or not, arguments on both sides will be more compelling if there are no gaps in knowledge. Exactly. I mean, there's a sort of a normative thing here that's behind it, which is you and I think that Canada needs a military and we'd like for it to operate better. There are other folks who think that there should not be a military or that uh, we should not feed the beast by letting women serve in the military since that just legitimates various things. And that, that kind of divide is, is kind of unbridgeable. But I think in general, our, our stance is, is, I think, pretty reasonable. People will disagree. And, and that's the joy of academia is that, again, there's lots of different perspectives. Yeah. And I, th I don't know if you recall the process of the defense policy consultations. I mean, you 
I think you alluded to this in one of our previous podcasts, but there was one roundtable organized that was specifically on gender issues. So that is one thing where I've seen a sea of change in the past decade. Before, there wasn't really an opportunity for feminist scholars to engage with defense interlocutors, whether they were uh, civilian in defense or members of the Canadian Armed Forces. But I've really seen an, an opening for these conversations to take place. And so whether feminist scholars in international relations want to engage or not uh, with the military, at least now they have some opportunities to do so. They can turn down those opportunities, but at least those opportunities are there. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was struck during that process of how most of the roundtables were very male dominated. There were very few women in the room, but it was good to see that the government compensated for that by organizing that supplemental or that additional roundtable because that wasn't in their original plans, but they were getting smarter about this as things went along. Yeah, And, the, and there were some men at that roundtable. So gender, not always women. And um, some, some male participants also showed up to discuss a range of gender issues that the Canadian Armed Forces and, you know, what is uh, other defense stakeholders are struggling with. Yes, I mean, I think we can see from the problems the Americans are having these days with their special operations forces that toxic masculinity is not just a thing that affects women, but it affects men. And so we see that the way men are treated, there's a lot, when we talk about sexual assault in the armed forces around the world, we're not just talking about women being the victims of that, we're also talking about men. So Mm -hmm. these issues are gendered, but they're not just, just for women alone. Exactly. That concludes our questions that we got from our listeners this week on the podcast. And it's actually a nice segue for the upcoming Junior Scholar segment and the interview we have with Sylvia Beshevkin. We're here with Megan Shoemaker on Battle Rhythm. Megan is a PhD candidate in political studies at Queen's University and also a policy analyst at DHRD, which is the Directorate of Human Rights and Diversity with the Canadian Armed Forces. Thank you for having me. So what I'm curious about is those factors that may influence women's deployment uh, decisions and motivations and also whether those are the same for men and women. So there, there's multiple sources of resistance that may exist for, for women to deploy on operations or participation in security and defense. Uh, one of those examples would be sexual violence, and we saw that with the Canadian Armed Forces and the Deschamps Report, as well as leadership, which has been shown uh, with relation to sexual violence as well, and in other circumstances, uh, the impact that leadership can have on diversity and feelings of inclusion in security realms. Despite this increased attention paid to women's participation in security and defense, a lot of the research has continued to focus on men and their representation. Uh, A lot of the research that's been done has considered motivations for deployment and combat, but has interviewed men and said it in a very generalizing way. Knowing what you do at DHRD with the focus on diversity with the Canadian Armed Forces, one might think that your work there inspired your dissertation work, but that's not the case because you started your PhD before you joined DHRD. Can you tell me then what inspired you to study this topic? It's uh, The Coles Notes version um, starts back in my undergraduate degree, actually, and in third and fourth year, I loved courses on human rights, on international law and international politics and also a focus on discrimination and sexual violence, particularly unfounded sexual violence cases in Ontario. 
And it was kind of a natural progression when I decided I wanted to pursue a master's degree. And I had met with my supervisor, who was you, Stephanie, and there was a connection there, both in personality, but also research interest. And I don't remember if it was the international focus of your research or the defense side of your research necessarily, but I remember being intrigued by the intersection of gender with all of those different facets. And through beginning work with the Canadian Armed Forces and research on the Canadian Armed Forces as a research assistant and integrating veterans, it kind of grew from Canadian Armed Forces to defense policy to foreign policy and then this focus on, on NATO. And so I would say that it was mostly that and really understanding the literature and international relations literature and how that intersects with gender that, that sparked my interest in studying what I am. And I wanted to know if, from your perspective, there are new questions that were generated from your research, because I'm sure there are MA students and PhD students out there who are thinking about their topics and who might be inspired by the new questions that your own research raised. So there's a number of questions that arose through, through my research and through some of the qualitative data that I had through interviews. Um, one of them is having critical assessment, uh, post-colonial theory, LGBT and, and queering international policies and theories um, integrated into these conversations of security and defense. Uh, I think there should be a focus from looking at women or white women or cisgendered white women and men for that matter um, to really broaden the scope and consider the different experiences and exclusions of, of these populations. So that was one that came up for, for my own research that I'm really interested in, in probing further. So you're now working for an agency people aren't very familiar with. So could you give the 30 second elevator pitch what your agency is doing and then what your day job is? So DHRD works on issues like the duty to accommodate, reconciliation, uh, diversity and inclusion, um, contributes to discussions about official languages, and ultimately does all of the reporting and tracking for the employment equity um, guidelines and report and the Multiculturalism Act. At DHRD, I work on high-level strategy for diversity and inclusion. Um, I participate in some of the duty to accommodate and social policy development there. Um, I'm also the point of contact for uh, research on diversity and inclusion for our unit. So if there's a particular question that we think would be of relevance or of interest to the policy that we're working on, uh, we reach out to DGMPRA, which is the research arm for the Department of National Defense, and liaise with them. And it's also my role to connect with external stakeholders and partners um, in an informal way, but just to see what type of research is out there right now, what's being published that could help us uh, have a better understanding of the research that's currently being done for the issues that we're looking to develop policy on. There's a unique position for academia and the private sector with policy development right now. There seems to be a push to, to consult, obviously, with reason and there's definitely a place for, for academics, whether it's providing presentations and briefing notes to people in policymaking realms, or even just making your research accessible to policymakers and policy developers. So a lot of the times, actually getting access to academic journals is quite difficult if you don't have a subscription or if you're not part of a university. Whereas if you do a briefing note based on your research or perhaps an op-ed and then share it with policymakers, it can then let them have public access to the research that you're doing, maybe follow up with you if you're the author and then develop the policy uh, based on that. Uh, we wish you luck and finish your dissertation.
really excited to share this interview I recorded with Sylvia Beshevkin, a political science professor at the University of Toronto. We were both in Vancouver attending the CPSA annual conference. CPSA stands for the Canadian Political Science Association. Beshevkin won the Best Book Award in International Relations. This book, called Women as Foreign Policy Leaders, really takes her closer to the world of security and defense, but she was already well known for her scholarly work on gender and politics. She has many books to her name and some pretty impressive distinctions to boot, including fellowship in the Royal Society of Canada and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Political Science Association. Hello, Sylvia. Hello, Steph. We're going to have a little conversation about the book, and I really wanted to uh, take it to the beginning and ask you what was the initial initial or original inspiration for this book? Well, I started to work on women as foreign policy leaders because as a scholar of comparative politics and Canadian politics, I was astonished that no one in that whole big United States uh, had actually done a comparative study, a comparative biography, a comparative history uh, of women as foreign policy leaders. Here we saw four um, very high-profile, extremely influential women, many of whom are political science professors themselves. Hillary Clinton would be the only exception. She was briefly a law professor. Here we have these women reaching the top of foreign policy leadership positions, and nobody had seen fit to, to compare them. So I was very curious about what could be drawn out of a kind of comparative biography approach uh, to women as leaders. So there are so many themes here that kick around about uh, women in war. Uh, there are many themes that kick around in the literature about the extent to which countries like the United States become weaks, uh, supposedly on the international stage when they have women leaders. Uh, the extent to which these women are supportive of other women and they're supportive in particular of women's rights in the global south. So I saw a lot of um, puzzles kicking around and I am generally a curiosity-driven scholar. So. If I'm curious about something, I, I pursue it. And I was fortunate in 2008 to apply for uh, an SSHRC uh, Insight Grant, which funded the project. But you know, I need to point out to uh, scholars and readers that this project was more than 10 years between the uh, grant application and the publication of the book. So it took me a long time, but it's because I wanted to write a book that general readers could actually get their teeth into and, and learn from. I'm grateful that you're transparent about the time that it took you to write this book. And I recall a few years back, you did visit Kingston. Uh, we invited you at Queen's University to deliver a keynote address for the Women in International Security Canada workshop. And so I'm curious, in the time that you spend to write the book, can you give us some insights into the ups and downs and the whole journey of the research and writing process? Sure. I mean, I initially wrote a, a kind of scholarly article for the International Political Science Review. came out in 2014. They kind of started to open the field of women as foreign policy leaders. Um, and that journal article looked at some of the questions that I had, that my students had, that people on the street have. For example, do countries donate more to the um, equality goals of women and girls in the global south when there are women in charge of foreign policy decision-making in the global north? certain common sense questions, which I couldn't find any answers to in the academic literature. So I saw myself as somebody who was going to start tilling a field, senior enough that I could spend time 
um, wasn't facing a tenure clock or anything. I could, you know, spend time probing these questions. So uh, participating in that uh, conference in Kingston was very important because it showed me that there were a lot of younger scholars who were fascinated by many of the same questions, but I realized none of them could, first of all, take the risk to work on a subject that would take so long uh, to come to fruition as a book. Um, moreover, this is a qualitative study, and many of the norms in our discipline are pushing for more quantitative research. So I realized if anyone was going to take this risk, it would have to be someone at a more senior career stage. But I was very encouraged by the curiosity um, about these questions that was shared um, by people at the, at the conference at Queen, uh, Queen's University and by the fact that many women who had been in uh, defense organizations in the Canadian military, who had been involved with NATO in Canada, that they were also curious about these questions. So I think that's what comes together in, in, in working on a project. And I was fortunate that the uh, Studies in Gender and International Relations series at Oxford University Press in New York, which is co-edited by two stars of the galaxy mm -hmm. in feminist international relations, Anne Tickner and Laura Schoberg, I was very fortunate that when I sent a book proposal to Anne and Laura and to the series editor, whose name is Angela Chnapko, within five hours I had a very enthusiastic response asking me, when is this manuscript going to be finished? We'd like to assess it. So I realized that you know, the curiosity that I had alone in a room was shared. I, I realized that when I went to the Queen's Conference. I realized it when I um, did public speaking. I realized it when I sent out that journal article. And you do mention some positive reaction from audiences. Have you mm -hmm. had other types of reactions since the book has been published? Well, certainly when I do public speaking, I meet people. I'm, I remember early, uh, you know, within a week of when the book was released, I was invited to the University of Ottawa. I was very grateful to my colleagues for inviting me to speak. It was a packed room, and I spoke about Jean Kirkpatrick's contributions to the Reagan Doctrine. So we're talking about the early 1980s, the U.S. is involved in trying, uh, in, in the first Reagan administration, to channel funds from arms sales uh, to Iran to the Contras in Central America. It's part of a larger U.S. foreign policy uh, exercise in the twilight years of the Cold War to limit Soviet influence in Central America. And there were people in the room at the University of Ottawa who became irate, absolutely irate. Who was I to celebrate Jean Kirkpatrick? Why was I there as an apologist for the Reagan Doctrine. And I made it very clear I was here as an analyst. I was here to talk about the fact that, left to his own devices, Ronald Reagan might not have had a foreign policy doctrine, and that Jean Kirkpatrick had largely crafted it, although she's very much uh, ignored in accounts of Reagan administration foreign policy making. So I was there to sort of recover her history, to get away from this problem where women leaders are erased from history. And I tried to make it clear to the critics in the room this is really not a, a case of celebrating or decorating any individual woman or any individual president for whom she worked, but rather um, a question of the extent to, we, to which we acknowledge uh, the contributions of women in transforming U.S. foreign policy, because clearly the difference between Jimmy Carter's foreign policy and Ronald Reagan's was quite stark. But it's rare that people spend time thinking about how Kirkpatrick was the architect of much of that shift. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the book is not only do you make those 
accounts more visible because they're very often ignored, mm -hmm. but you tackle some of the stereotypes about women in foreign policy head on anyway. And you bring a lot of nuance in the book, and mm -hmm. one thing that really came across for me is the extent to which uh, women diplomats don't necessarily support feminist causes. And here we see a lot of variation across the four cases. Can you tell me more about how you grappled with this in the book? Sure. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised to reach that finding. I mean, I've spent much of my career looking at women legislators, women party leaders, women party activists. And in the comparative and Canadian literatures, we know that generally women who come out of left parties and center-left parties tend to be more attached to the collective values of feminist mobilization than women who are in right and center-right parties. They're simply, you know, on the left of the spectrum, much more willingness to talk about collective responses to problems, and on the right, a far more individualistic uh, response to challenges. So the fact that this was reproduced in the, in, the, in the lives of four foreign policy leaders wasn't surprising, particularly because we know that the difference between Republican and Democratic administrations in the US has become increasingly polarized on matters that have to do with international relations. For example, the fact that Ronald Reagan's administration in 1984 imposed the Mexico City policy prohibiting US foreign aid to NGOs, to countries, to any organization which is providing abortion, and many people argue it's been extended to contraception as well in the global south. The fact that that particular Mexico City policy has been part of every Republican administration since 1984, that leads us to see immediately that women who are part of Republican administrations are very different from those who are part of Democratic administrations, because every Democratic president, very early in his presidency since 1984, has basically overturned that Mexico City precedent of Republican uh, predecessors. So we, you know, I knew that there were these left-right um, variations, uh, but looking at them in in depth with respect to foreign policy, I think was uh, was very enlightening. In part because I was dealing with, in the cases of Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton, women who really staked out a great deal of their reputation around looking at women's security, around looking at um, the importance of women as decision makers, who put an emphasis on networking with other women, and Republican um, appointees such as Jean Kirkpatrick and Condoleezza Rice, who had very individualistic responses, um, who were often very critical of organized feminism. But in the case of Rice, um, we know she was part of a George W. Bush administration that used a lot of language that sounded like it was feminist. Um, but we know that Rice herself was very uncomfortable with collective responses uh, to discrimination, whether the discrimination was based on race or on gender or on age or any other factor. I'm glad you're bringing so many examples in from the book, and I will ask you to bring out more in a sense sure. in discussing how feminist language is sometimes instrumentalized in mm -hmm. the context of justifying foreign interventions. Because uh, I know in, in reference to certain wars, especially the war in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. this really is shining through your analysis. Yes, I mean, what's interesting in the book is we see you know, um, uh, a willingness of the George W. Bush administration to initially argue that the reasons for intervention in Afghanistan were to get uh, you know, Taliban uh, uh, training camps and so on in Afghanistan. And we know that after the attacks of 9-11, the American public quickly tired of the argument 
uh, that this was all about finding Osama bin Laden and rooting out terror uh, from its base in Afghanistan. Because of course, there were even films made about where is Osama bin Laden? People became very impatient. And so research suggests that the Bush administration took on more and more of a kind of feminist sounding discourse, including in the radio address by the First Lady, Laura Bush, to try and argue that actually the reasons for intervention in Afghanistan had to do with freeing women and girls from the oppression of the Taliban. So it was really um, a much more sort of feminist sounding approach than rooting out Osama bin Laden, rooting out training camps and so on. We saw similar uh, discourse used um, after the March two, uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq uh, by the American leadership, the argument that this was about freeing women and girls in Iraq. But I think by that time there had been a fair bit of pushback, particularly by women's organizations in the United States and globally to sort of question the use of that language. What's interesting about the use of feminist sounding language in the Bush administration is it was much more frequently used by the president and the first lady, Laura Bush, than it was by Condoleezza Rice, who didn't speak too much about the women and girls uh, of Afghanistan nor of Iraq. And many people argue it's because Rice herself was a somewhat difficult carrier of that discourse. She was a single woman. She still is. She had no children. And so it was argued it made more sense for Laura Bush as a mom and um, a married woman, obviously married to the president, to be, to be using that sort of maternal sounding uh, language. So Rice occasionally used it, but it was other members of the administration that seemed to more frequently uh, invoking this notion that U.S. Uh, military intervention was about s supposedly saving women and girls. This kind of brings me to my next question about feminist principles and the use of force. Is it possible to reconcile feminism with the use of force to defend humanitarian values? I come across this in my own work mm -hmm. as NATO, as a military alliance, is trying to embed gender analysis in the planning of its operations. But fundamentally, I think it's fair to ask, is feminism compatible with the use of force at all? Well, I argue in the book and, in, and throughout my research that there are many varieties of feminism. So it's very difficult to argue that there is one feminist approach to war, or that there's a single feminist approach to military intervention. It seems to me if we look at the, at the range, for example, of views in the US Democratic Party during the Clinton era, during the Obama era, there seemed to be a willingness to view, for example, threats facing women and girls in a given region. Let's just take the, uh, Central Europe, the, you know, the Balkans, uh, in the uh, 1990s, the period of the breakdown of the former Yugoslavia, the argument that it was women and girls who were largely um, uh, facing uh, threats of violence, realities of violence, uh, early, in early on in Bosnia, later on in Kosovo. And so the argument that Madeleine Albright used to try and push back, in fact, against the military advisors to President Clinton and other members of the cabinet um, the argument that she used was that, you know, that standing and waiting had, had gone on too long and that there was simply too much um, in terms of the, um, of the willingness of the world to, to turn a blind eye to violence against women and girls in the center of Europe, let alone in other regions of the world. So I think her um, doctrine of R2P, the responsibility to protect, was largely grounded in an idea that you could have humanitarian intervention uh, unlike President Clinton's military advisors, Albright argued you did not need boots on the ground for decades 
because the argument that was often used by military advisors was the U.S. would become enmeshed in a morass that was like Vietnam, uh, an unwinnable you know, war that saw a great deal of uh, loss of American life and uh, that ultimately would, uh, would not stop, um, uh, for example, violence against women and girls. And Albright's argument was that an air war, that surgical strikes, that you know, using economic pressures, boycotts, diplomatic pressure, a whole array of tools, and not just military intervention, but and that there were different types of military intervention. I think her argument was one which was very hard to win, uh, both on Bosnia and Kosovo, but it seems to me that ultimately she was able, uh, I think, to argue that there had to be some intervention, and if NATO couldn't protect women and girls in its own backyard, then how on earth was the Western Alliance ever going to argue that had learned anything uh, from the horrors of the Second World War? Uh, when you present the book to a broader audience, what are some of the key takeaways that you highlight for them? Can you share those with me? Sure. For example, I was asked um, a couple weeks ago uh, to speak with a large, uh, a large audience of seniors in Barrie, Ontario. And um, many of the questions that people in the, in the general public want to know about is how can they raise their daughters and granddaughters to be leaders? It's a question that people want to know about. Where did these four women come from? In terms of the, you know, the parents and the grandparents and the nurturing. And, and so my response to that question is, look, this book actually offers a great deal of insight into the um, willingness of parents to expose their daughters to challenges at a young age and to expect those girls to rise to the occasion and then to become very confident and uh, proficient and ambitious uh, adult women. So, for example, Jean Kirkpatrick raised as a uh, sort of a, uh, you know, a tomboy in a kind of cowboy zone of Oklahoma, um, born in the 1920s, uh, comes of age where her father's uh, working on oil rigs. It's a rough life, but she rides horses, she plays boys' sports. Her parents also train her in piano and public speaking. So she learns a great deal of poise and also physical stature. So she's always a very, self-presents a very strong woman. Certainly Madeleine Albright's childhood um, in Central Europe, uh, I mean, the, the Gestapo invades uh, Prague, um, and she's only two years old. And she and her parents escape through a series of um, bribes and uh, getaways. Uh, they manage to leave Prague for Belgrade, and then they go to, through Greece to England. She spends the war in London. Her father's part of the Czech government in exile. She's exposed to the Blitz. She sees the destruction of houses in her neighborhood. She never knows if her father will get home from work each day. And she's given the responsibility of caring for our baby sister. And she has the family's ration coupons. And she's responsible for this little sister of hers, and she walks the streets of London to get the, ra the food that's being rationed. And her parents put a great deal of trust in her as a very young child. One could argue similar uh, kinds of challenges uh, that Rice faces, for example. She's a young girl growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. It's the most segregated large city in the United States at that time. She's um, a small child when a, a church down the street from her father's church is demolished in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a, an arson bombing by the, by the KKK. And little girls from her, her kindergarten are killed. There's four little girls killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing of 1963. She's nine years old. She's exposed to the raw face of, um, of racial oppression as a very young child. And her parents eventually move her into Tuscaloosa, which is a more um, 
uh, integrated town in Alabama, eventually to Denver. Um, but but she's certainly exposed to the some of the harshest uh, politics of. Uh, um, of, of the post-war United States with the, the civil rights uh, struggle in that era. And certainly, you know, Hillary Clinton grows up in um, uh, post-war affluence in suburban Chicago, but she has two brothers, and her parents raise her to be rough and tough. A tough you know, she learns to shoot, she learns to fish. Uh, she is uh, physically very strong. She gets involved in politics very, very young. And so I think, you know, these, these uh, women's stories give us an idea about the importance of... Um, offering opportunities for growth, even for young girls, about developing resilience. And they go on, in each case, to have a very significant contribution to public discourse around foreign policy and around politics generally. And I think it's in part because they had so much uh, confidence and uh, you know, opportunity to grow um, as young girls. So some of the takeaways that public audiences are interested in about the book are very different from those that academics have, but I think they're nevertheless very important because they lead us to sort of ask and answer questions about where do women leaders come from? And they often come from places where families actually have to expose their daughters to all kinds of challenges, which, they in turn, which these daughters, thank goodness, rise to meet. And then they, they develop this sense that they, that they can go on and do all kinds of pioneering work in this world. And what about the women themselves? Uh, we're fortunate enough to teach the next generation of, mm. of leaders, and some of them will aspire to make foreign policy contributions in their own right. Are there any lessons we can draw from the book to maybe offer some recommendations to our younger students? Sure. I, I think in each of the four cases, these women face challenges, um, not just as children, but also as adults that they rose to, to meet. For example, Jean Kirkpatrick had a very, very tragic tale of, she had three sons. Her eldest son died at the age of 50. He was uh, an alcoholic from, from uh, it appears, from high school. And um, this was a, a terrible difficulty throughout her adult life. Um, you know, there were scenes where her son would try and uh, get into the U.S. mission to the U.N. and have to be taken away by security. I mean, she had a lot of, of difficulties in her personal life, but she nevertheless managed to try and move forward in her professional uh, career. Certainly the fact that Albright was a refugee twice by the time she was 11. First, of course, her family fled the Nazis in, in uh, Czechoslovakia. And then after the war, when her family goes back, her father has a very senior position in the post-war Czech government, but there's, of course, a communist takeover in post-war Czechoslovakia, and they have to leave, and they seek asylum initially in uh, the UK and then in the United States. So she sees the Statue of Liberty as an 11-year-old in New York Harbor and is overwhelmed at her sense of gratitude uh, for finally, she hopes, finding a safe haven in a very rough world. Um, Rice's, uh, Rice's difficulties include not just surviving Birmingham as a child, but also her father, her, her, uh, uh, her, her mother had breast cancer when she was only about 15 years old, mm -hmm. and her father was, um, was very traumatized by that, as was she, but she continued to move forward, and her mother did survive. She died uh, later on, but, but still, um, that must have been difficult, and Hillary Clinton faced what, by many accounts, was a, a very difficult um, upbringing with her, her father and his lack of patience with the family, and then, obviously, in her marriage to Bill Clinton. And in, in fact, Hillary Clinton's uh, interest in the larger world, one could argue, is related directly to the uh, scandals that faced her husband and the questions about the nature of her marriage when she was first lady. 
And so the fact that she turns to the larger world in the midst of that Monica Lewinsky scandal is in fact a tribute to the fact that she also rebuilt despite the challenges that she faced in her life. And so Sylvia, thank you so much for participating in Battle Rhythm. Thank you for inviting me. In today's episode, we discuss Canada's challenges with dealing with sexual assault and harassment in the Canadian Armed Forces. I just hope that those in the Canadian Armed Forces don't look south, as the Americans have taken a huge step backwards on these issues. How? Well, the United States, the, the President and the Secretary of Defense have nominated General John Hyten to be the next Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Hyten has been accused of sexual assault by a subordinate. The Senate Armed Services Committee voted 20-7 to confirm Hyten, which means that he has most likely become the next Vice Chairman. And this is one of the highest positions in all of the American Armed Forces. To be clear, we don't know if Hyten is guilty of sexual assault. We just know he's been accused fairly credibly. And so the question is, should we hold the highest ranking officers to the highest standards or not? That allowing someone with this potential stain on their record sends a strong signal that all the talk about taking sexual harassment and assault seriously is just that. Talk. This case exemplifies much of what is wrong with the U.S. Armed Forces and the state of oversight in the United States. Generals and admirals are not held to the same standards. That sexual assault and harassment cases are handled by investigators who are often subordinate to the person being accused. That accusers often are treated quite shabbily. That Senate confirmation processes have been corrupted by partisanship. That the Democrats themselves are screwed up on this issue because most of the males on the committee most of the Democratic males in the committee also voted to confirm Hyten. And finally, that the presidential primary process gets in the way of oversight. Let me address each in turn. One of the lessons of the American Forever Wars is that generals and admirals are often unaccountable, that they can do stuff and still get promoted. Why? Perhaps because the military's popularity and the mantra of supporting their troops causes civilians, including those in the Congress, to fear the backlash they might receive if they actually push back a little bit and ask some tough questions. This might be longer than that, might be more than just the Forever Wars, because if Twitter is any judge, the vets on Twitter definitely perceive a double standard and hypocrisy in play here. That senior officers talk a good game about standards, yet live by different ones. I'm not sure whether this Twitter view is real or not, that it, but whether it is or not, it has an impact. That this perception that the officers live by different standards may cause troops to dismiss the lectures and continue the old ways of behaving. That one reason why the U.S. military has not been successful at weeding out sexual harassment, sexual assault, is because they haven't been challenging the senior officers on these matters. Which leads to a process problem. That the military has argued that good order and discipline require that senior commanders be responsible for discipline. Which means that they and their subordinates handle investigations. What happens when those in the chain of command are accused? Senator Kirsten Gillenbrand has been pushing for years to have outside actors investigate accusations about sexual assault and harassment, since there's been a tendency for those investigating to protect their own. There's a third problem here. Accusers get treated poorly. So much for Me Too. We saw those on the committee basically accusing the accuser of being toxic, of being the problem, of potentially being mentally ill. This included Senator McSally, who herself was raped when she was in uniform. Which reminds me of something I've heard a lot, which is that there are some women who, when they succeed, don't help the next generation. And here's a good example of that. Why is she doing that? Partisanship. Studies have shown that congressional oversight in the United States has declined, that there are fewer hearings and less serious oversight. 
the Benghazi hearings of a few years ago looked far more like a show trial than serious oversight. In my current work with a couple of colleagues, I'm studying democracies around the world, and I went into it thinking that partisanship is bad for oversight, that party discipline leads folks to protect the government if, they, if their party is in power and oppose the government uh, if they're out of power. And those in opposition tend to have less information and less agenda control. See Canada for that. And as a result, people who are, are in power are not held to account. The United States used to be different. You had Democratic senators holding the appointees of the Democratic president's feet to the fire. And you had Republican senators doing the same thing for appointees of Republican presidents. John McCain made his name on the Senate Armed Services Committee by being a maverick for doing precisely this, for asking tough questions of Republicans serving a Republican president. Not any longer. However, the vote was not as partisan as expected. All the Republicans, save one, voted for Heighton, to be expected. Jody Ernst, one of the few women in the Republican caucus, voted against him. But among the Democrats... Most of the males voted for Heighton. What happened to being the party for women's rights? What happened to be the Democrats taking a higher road? Why did these Democratic men let a man accused of sexual harassment sail through the process? It used to be some accusation like this would destroy a career. For a general or an admiral, these days, it's not problematic. There's one other dynamic here that's driving me crazy. Gillenbrand was not there. She was too busy preparing for another Democratic debate as a presidential candidate. This topic has been hers. She has been leading on this issue of sexual harassment and assault in the military, of trying to figure out ways to make the military more accountable to make it a better environment for women to serve. Why are all these senators pursuing the presidency when only a few of them have a real chance? They should be satisfied with being in this very small, exclusive, powerful club of being a U.S. senator. To be fair, again, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are viable presidential candidates. And they happen to be two of the best at doing oversight, of doing the research, of being prepared, and asking tough questions. But again, they're too busy running for the presidency. So who's left in the Senate to ask the tough questions and to put people's feet to the fire? All this together helps to contribute to a reality I blogged earlier this week, that I'm cursing more and more online and in real life. Why? We live in times that should and do outrage us. The U.S. military is broken, as senior officers are not being held accountable. Congress is not doing its job. And so the next generation of sexual assaulters and harassers are being told, well, if you're of a high enough rank, you'll be fine. And those who've been victimized by, the, by sexual assault and harassment are being told to be keep quiet or be accused of being toxic for having dared risk the career of a senior officer. This is why I use FFS a lot in my tweets and my blogs. I'm outraged. Are you? Our email address is cdsn dot rcds at outlook.com and our twitter account is at cdsnrcds you can find all of our activities events and more about the cdsn at cdsn-rcds.com <laughs>